The process of applied functional science is the transformation of the notion into the motion. From Great Institute, I'm Barb, and this is the Great Institute Podcast. Great Institute is internationally acclaimed for its innovation, development, mastery, and delivery of applied functional science. AFS is based on scientific truth, not theory, on how the human body moves in all three planes. AFS allows movement professionals like you to apply the best, most effective, and most efficient movements to any individual based on specific needs and goals. For 40 years, through training, education, and mentorship, Great Institute has equipped over 150,000 professionals with comprehensive knowledge in the principles of applied functional science. Whether you're a physical therapist, personal trainer, athletic trainer, chiropractor, strength and conditioning coach, coach, physician, physiotherapist, occupational therapist, osteopath, physical therapy assistant, or kinesiologist, our goal is to help you become the go-to movement professional. The Gray Institute podcast is questions-based. You send in your questions and we discuss them. We join Gary as he discusses optimal body movement and function for our clients. If you're listening and have a question, email them to info at grayinstitute.com. From Gray Institute, I'm Gary Gray, and this is the Gray Institute podcast. Hey, welcome, everyone. Um, if you're listening to this real time, uh, we realize we're in a situation we've uh, never, ever been in before. And if you would have told any of us three or four months ago this would be the situation we were in, we would significantly doubt that. Um, so I just hope and pray all of you are uh, staying healthy. Uh, what's been impressive to me is how many of you are reaching out and helping others. And uh, that's really incredible. I was on a uh, Zoom last night where I found out a couple of my friends are volunteering time at the ER and one therapist went back to be a nurse again and is on the front lines. And another one of our facilitators for GIFT is doing the uh, COVID-19 tests. So a lot of people doing a lot of cool things. Uh, and that's, I believe, evidence not of the human mind of the but uh, and not of the human body but of the human spirit uh when there's needs out there uh you all show up and uh so it almost seems trivial talking about some of these questions but uh when we see the big picture but sometimes it's these little things that add up to the big things where we can help people and uh, significantly enhance their lives so hopefully uh the three questions that we have today that we're going to talk about will help uh, you understand the human body better uh, therefore the human mind better and the human spirit better and uh and when it's all said and done, that's what lasts. So appreciate you being a part of our podcast and kind of hanging in there. So let's get started. Our very first one is from T Sharon Tash, and she has a beautiful question. Uh, and I'll just kind of read it. It's a little, little long, but uh, I think it gives us context. It says, hi, I'm working on the CAVS course right now, and I have a question. CAVS is our certification of applied functional science. We have two main certifications. One is 3D Maps that teaches you how to assess and gives you uh, probably three to 400 exercises to build upon success to get somebody better, uh, to enhance them, to rehab them. And then CAVS gets more specific. It looks more local than it does global. Uh, so I'm very impressed that Sharon is taking time to learn that. 
Uh, and then she goes on and says, if the abs and lumbar spine are designed for stability when doing an overhead reach in the sagittal plane, should the movement come from the thoracal cylinder since they should be the mobile part of the spine? That was the question. And also, when going through the frontal plane side to side, does the movement come from the thoracic spine? Clarification would be most helpful. Uh, and then she adds, which is a key add. I work mostly with women 50 and over, and the average age is 65, and a very kind thank you. Well, first of all, Sharon, thank you. Um, and let's kind of go through a couple assumptions. There's there's a, a group out there that kind of goes through this mobile, stable, mobile, stable thing through the body um, where the feet are th theoretically mobile and then the knees stable, then the hips are mobile, then the lumbar spine stable, and then the thoracic spine's mobile, and then kind of, and that's, that's uh, a, a huge misconception. The key is every joint should be mobile and stable at the same time. And so there's no such thing as, well, the lumbar spine should be stable. In fact, when the lumbar spine is too stable uh, in certain planes of motion, and you mentioned the two, interestingly enough, the sagittal and frontal, that's when it gets beat up. Uh, and so part of that is our description of stability. A lot of people think stable is the lack of movement. So that's why I think this group looked at the knee and didn't see it move in three planes of motion as much as the hip. Saw the hip move a lot in three planes of motion, therefore it's mobile. Looks at the lumbar spine, it doesn't move hardly at all in the transverse plane, therefore theoretically stable. Thoracic spine moves in all three planes of motion, therefore mobile. So uh, not a good thought process. Uh, the, the thought process has to be uh, all joints have to be mobile and stable at the same time. In other words, it's the control of motion that's key. Uh, and then biomechanically, we need to know what motion is available. So let's go to the lumbar spine. The lumbar spine is kind of the coolest linkage system we have in our body. Maybe the only thing that I get a bigger jolly out of is the uh, subtalar joint. But when you look at the lumbar spine, uh, the facets and the disc and just the orientation of the ligaments and the muscles, we realize it's been beautifully designed to convert what's happening upstairs in our trunk to what's happening downstairs, our hips and our knees and our feet and the ground reaction force, and to convert what's happening downstairs to upstairs. Now, because we see a lot of people with low back problems, a lot of people would say from an engineering biomechanical standpoint, it was a poor design. Totally, I totally disagree with that. It's probably the most uh, uh, efficient and um, miraculous designs we have. Uh, because what it does is it, because of the facet orientation, it limits the amount of transverse plane motion. All that means is if let's say L4 barely rotates, then L5 has to begin rotating. And if L5 rotates, then the sacrum's got to rotate. And if that sucker's rotating, we know the pelvis is rotating. And if that's rotating, we know the hip's supposed to be rotating. So before we get into the sagittal frontal planes, it's critical that we understand the importance of the transverse plane. The lumbar spine is a transverse plane converter of force. And we realize that most of our force with walking, throwing, hitting, punching, dancing, jumping is in the transverse plane. That becomes significant. Therefore, we have to have huge mobility and stability in our hips in all three planes of motion, of course, primarily the transverse. And in the thoracic spine, again, predominantly the transverse. Because if the thoracic spine 
has a little bit of limitation in the transverse plane and the hips do as well and you simply just take a walk the lumbar spine is going to take an unfair hit that's why we call it a chain reaction that part of the chain is going to say whoa whoa wait a minute our links are getting beat up while the links above aren't doing what they're supposed to do and the links below aren't supposed to do what they're supposed to do now that's going to help us with our answer because if I do, and what I love the fact that you're doing this with the average age of 65 is you're handing them the free weight and starting very light and doing some overhead reaches to create stress through the body, to prevent um, osteoporosis, to enhance their posture, to increase their health and well-being and fitness. And uh, basically, there's never a time to stop with that kind of weight training. So uh, kudos to you. That's awesome. But the question is, when I'm doing an overhead reach in the sagittal plane, so I can go straight up or forward and back in the sagittal plane, should movement come from the thoracic cylinders? And the answer is, yeah, this could, we really need a lot from the shoulders. Uh, and then again, if, let's say I'm just doing an overhead reach and I go a little bit posterior. If I don't have that good shoulder flexion, then the next thing that really has to cheat for me is the thoracic spine. And then the next thing, if the thoracic spine can help me, is the lumbar spine. The lumbar spine is designed for some extension. And the lumbar spine is going to say, I'm going to give you some, but I'd sure appreciate if the hips could extend. And the hips are going to say, man, I sure would appreciate if the ankles could give me some dorsiflexion. And that's why when we go through 3D maps, we do our forward lunge and reach overhead, we see shoulder flexion, thoracic extension, lumbar extension, hip extension, knee extension, ankle dorsiflexion, because we need to see if that's there. So the neat thing is you answered your question very well, because if, if there's one place I'd want to go with a 65-year-old today to make sure they were safe doing an overhead press on the sagittal plane would be the thoracic spine. But, but if I really wanted to make them safe, I'm going to make sure, and you're learning this in calves, that I have good hip extension and I have good ankle dorsiflexion. And of course, the obvious if I'm doing an overhead press is with making sure I have good shoulder flexion, which means my scapula can move quite effectively down and over the rib cage posteriorly, which requires, as you properly said, uh, Sharon, to get the thoracic spine moving. Then you said, wait a minute now, if, once you answer that, if, if I go now side to side in the frontal plane, that, is that the same answer? Does that come from the thoracic spine? And guess what? You're entirely correct again. So the cool thing about this is, the chain reaction, if I just do a, a shoulder press, but I go what we call same side lateral. So imagine me having a five pound weight, I'm standing up and I take the weight up and to the right. And all of a sudden my body leans to the right because of the weight load. Uh, I have to have good shoulder uh, abduction. But again, as you properly pointed out, Sharon, I have to have good thoracic lateral flexion. And interestingly enough, I also will use lumbar lateral flexion. If I don't have good lumbar lateral flexion, something's gonna take a hit. And But in order to have good lumbar lateral flexion, I have to have good frontal plane motion in the hips. Abduction on one hip, adduction in the other hip. Strangely enough, that's why we in 3D maps have a thing called same side lateral chain, where literally we do a move to make sure that those components of motion are where they should be. Uh, and if not, we use our calves knowledge to go after those individualized joints and regions. So when my 65 year old lady lifts up the weight in the frontal plane, automatically she goes, hey, that was pretty easy. That felt good. And I want to do more. 
Now, the third part of the question would be now if I do my matrix, shoulder overhead matrix, where I go sagittal plane forward and back, frontal plane side to side, and now I add transverse plane. Now we really got to make sure that a lot of that's coming from the thoracic spine and the hips, because as we said earlier, that's a relative motion that we don't have in the lumbar spine. Now there's real motion and the bones rotate a lot. In other words, if I put a marker on L5 and I did a rotational reach where I took a weight and crossed over in front of myself and rotated up and high, so I have the weight in my right hand and I go way up and high on the left side, Hopefully my shoulder gives me the motion I need. As you properly said, Sharon, my thoracic spine. But boy, the next thing I want to really rotate is my pelvis through my hips. Because relatively speaking, I don't want that to happen at the lumbar spine. Now, herein lies the dilemma, as uh, Dr. Dave Tiberio would say. Most of us, even younger, don't have good motion at the subtalar joint and the hips and the thoracic spine because of what we do all day long. And therefore, when we do those kind of activities, such as a rotational reach, it beats up our low back and then everybody goes, oh, that's bad. You shouldn't rotate when you lift or you shouldn't rotate when you bend and squat. And that's just, again, heart's in the right spot because they see a correlation between people doing it and getting hurt. But we have to ask ourselves, is that a normal motion? Yes. Is it a needed motion? Yes. It is a vital motion? Yes. Therefore, should we train 65-year-olds in doing it? Yes. And therefore, but what do we have to make sure through our calves, understanding, uh, first of all, to make sure that that happens in the way we want, we have to make sure that the shoulder has most stability, mobility and stability, thoracic spine, hips, and subtalar joint. And immediately, if you do that, with that when that 65-year-old person uh, picks up the weight and takes them to the sagittal plane, frontal plane, and even the transverse plane, they're going to get this big smile on their face and they're going to go, Sharon, wow, this is changing my life. Uh, I never knew I was going to be able to lift my own body weight and have this kind of posture, let alone being able to gradually lift this free weight and gradually make my body better. And when I go home, I'm so much more successful at doing things. When I look in the mirror, I see somebody standing upright with a smile on their face. And I appreciate you taking the time to learn calves. I appreciate you taking the time to learn 3D maps. I appreciate you getting yourself better in order to make me better that that client would say. So on behalf of your clients and on behalf of Gray Institute, Sharon, I just want to thank you as well. Uh, question two. All right, we're, we're humming now. Question two actually comes from one of our gift fellows on behalf of a friend's um, son. So this is kind of cool. I, I love getting emails like this because somebody's saying, hey, could you help a friend of mine out? And it's not only a friend of mine, but it's her son. So uh, and this is from our gift fellow, Fiona Cressy, um, who has probably one of the coolest cats in the world by the name of Tasha. And we call her Fee. We call Fina Fee. And then uh, Fee says this, on another note, could you help us with something? I have a friend's son who's, help, who's wanting to study uh, physio, physical therapy here in the fall, uh, asked me for some information about what exactly is overpronation. And she said, well, I can send you to the website at Gray Institute. You can do a search online and da, 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 da. And, but she said, you know what? 
I would like to just reach out to Gary and see if he would be willing to answer that. And I said, that's such a great question. If you don't mind, I'm going to use it for a podcast. So here's the podcast answer. <laughs> Overpronation. Well, back in my day, and I know you don't like to hear that. You don't like to hear old people say back in my day, but back in my day in the 70s, uh, overpronation uh, was uh, probably the number one uh, thing that caused death. In other words, if you were a um, runner, uh, which I back then loved marathons and loved triathlons. I still do, but I, I, um, I don't do any marathons, but I still get to do triathlons. So I have to understand the running part of this is that the runner's world would say, well, if you have overpronation, you, you're going to die. So back then, shoes were made for overpronation. Orthotics were sold for people with overpronation. And if you look deep into it, no one knew what overpronation meant. Now, we first of all have to describe what pronation is to describe what's over and under pronation. So pronation is a triplane motion that occurs when the foot hits the ground and the body collapses because gravity and ground reaction force. Interesting enough, back in the 70s, we even said not only the foot pronates, but the knee pronates and the hip pronates. In other words, we were saying when the foot hits the ground, the knee loads tri in a triplane manner, the hip loads in a triplane manner, and we were entirely correct. We can't call it pronation because the opposite of pronation is supination, and at the knee, the opposite of that triplane loading isn't the three opposite motions. Two of those motions are the same, one's different. We'll talk about that at a different podcast because that's kind of fun. But when gravity comes together with mass and momentum comes together with ground reaction force, the heel everts uh, and the mid-tarsal joint unlocks and the talus falls down and in and the lower leg rotates in and the knee flexes and internally rotates and goes through abduction and the hip goes through flexion adduction and internal rotation and hopefully if you're listening to this uh, and you're not familiar with all that you're saying i'm lost and you don't have to be lost all you have to do is stand up and just collapse almost collapse and just see everything collapse and you'll see all those motions occur and so pronation is a necessary huge benefit that happens passively for free with walking and running. And uh, we'll many times get up in a seminar and I'll say, I'm walking and my heel everts, my mid-tarsal joint inverts, my ankle plantar flexes, then it dorsiflex, my rear foot internally rotates, my forefoot externally rotates or abducts, my knee flexes, my knee abducts, and my knee internally rotates. My hip flexes, my hip adducts, and my hip internally rotates. And can anybody tell me what muscles cause those motions to occur at those joints and those planes? And the answer is there are none. Uh, all of those are given for free. So pronation with walking and running is given for free. And interestingly enough, the motion of pronation uh, literally turns on proprioceptors to turn on muscles to control pronation. So we need to control pronation because the goal of the human body and of the foot and the knee and the hip is to get the leg stable enough still, mobile stability, you have to keep remembering that, not that it's rigid, that I can propel off a leg that doesn't feel like I'm walking on sand. And so when we saw feet that maybe rolled in too much and got too flat and too mushy, we go, oh, we have a foot that's uh, overpronated. The problem with that is, is some feet that pronate a lot really 
add to the athleticism of the individual they're hooked onto. And if you were like me back in the 70s, you'd panic and you'd look at the book definition of overpronation and you would buy a anti-pronation shoe or design an anti-pronation orthotic and stick it in there and hope and pray that it would work. And many times it would it definitely would limit the pronation. But because the pronation was a natural loading for a natural exploding, it stole from Peter to pay Paul. In fact, I would say it stole from Peter and stole from Paul because now the knee didn't function the way it needed to function. The hip muscles weren't turned on the way they should be to produce power and this person got beat up. Yes, clinically, uh, if you looked at their foot in the shoe and or on the orthotic, it looked like less eversion or less component of pronation in the frontal plane. And we go, oh, this is gonna help. But now we go, nope, that's not good. So grossly, the definition of overpronation is too much pronation that the body can't then supinate to take advantage of that motion and allow efficient and effective gait. And so what is that? Well, the problem with that is that that is a lot of things. It could be caused from what's happened at the trunk, uh, the hip, uh, more the foot, the opposite side hip, the shoulders themselves could literally cause the limb and especially the foot to pronate so much that it can't then decelerate all of that pronatory motion that it cannot then explode and allow us to propel off a what we call a rigid or some a rigid foot by that I mean one that's stable at the midtarsal joint so exactly what is overpronation uh, overpronation is too much pronation in an individual where they can't uh, come back into enough inversion of the heel prior to heel lift to lock up the mid-tarsal joint and put the hip at a mechanical advantage. Overpronation caused by a lot of things ultimately uh, puts the limb at a disadvantage uh, and we therefore have to determine the cause of the overpronation, treat the cause in order to then get the leg to pronate when it should, supinate when it should. Now, the way to say that in the frontal plane is evert when it should at the subtalar joint, invert when it should, to create a mobile adapter at first and then a stable propeller at the end to propel off to get on the other foot. Uh, so just knowing that this young man is already thinking about these questions before he even gets into physical therapy school is amazing. Uh, I'm jealous. I'm, I'm jealous because he's already going, hey, I'm going to probably have to know this to help people. And yes, because it's a it's a big deal because gravity, ground reaction force, mass momentum cause pronation and potentially cause the overpronation. We have to know that. We have to know the physics of that. We have to know the biomechanics of that in order to say, hmm, I'm going to see a lot of people with this problem. I better figure out how to solve it. So hopefully that was a good start to get you thinking about that. If we want to go deeper into all the components of pronation and all the components of supination at the foot and triplane loading and unloading at the knee and the hip, we definitely can do that. But right now, I think that's a good way if you get your hands around what pronation is and therefore what overpronation is 
that's a good foundation to take you to the next level. So, Fee, thanks for uh, contacting me on behalf of your friend's son, and uh, we'll make sure we get this to you so you can get it to your friend's son. And if he has any follow-up questions, uh, it would be an honor for me to try to answer them. And we're going to go to number three here real quick. Uh, so hopefully you're still hanging in there. Uh, this is a really great uh, question because uh, it hits me in the in the middle of the eyeballs, uh, in, in the back of the head, in the front of the head, inside of the head, and rotation of the head, 3D head whack, uh, because uh, I'm guilty as charged on this one. Um, and it's from Hayes Enclome. Uh, and Hayes said, which is quite nice, hi, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I guess when you get old, sometimes you have – uh, one or two fans out there, and that's kind of fun, but just nice that somebody to be kind enough to reach out and say that. And he says this, as you know, in PT school, we're taught to load certain musculature with one-dimensional exercises to promote muscle hypertrophy, such as a weighted knee extension and heavy XXX, which in XXX, he, you can already tell he knows his uh, functional nomenclature. It means his feet are uh, in a kind of a frontal plane, sagittal plane, and transverse plane neutral position. Uh, XXX squats to promote quadricep hypertrophy. My question is for a bodybuilder athlete. How can a therapist slash coach promote quadriceps hypertrophy utilizing a three-dimensional approach rather than a one-dimensional approach such as knee extension or by overloading in the XX squat pattern? Woo, bingo, bingo, bingo. So I wish somebody would have asked me this years ago and I wish I could have answered it years ago because here's what we did when we got deep into function. We let the body go through a path of least resistance, and as we would rehab, and we're, I'm going to take a typical, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do a bodybuilder here on one hand, and we'll do a status post knee surgery on the other hand. What we found is if we let the body do, do what it wants to do, it will use the powerful hamstring and buttocks, uh, glutes, and even the calf in order to accomplish squatting and coming back from squatting, or what we might call running, or what we might call reaching down to pick up something, or what we might call just trying to look pretty on a stage to get my muscles hypertrophied. And so Hayes does a beautiful job saying, wait a minute, there's got to be a better way than just cranking on a knee extension machine because those of us who have done that for a few years realize we're tearing up the patellofemoral joint. Uh, we're actually teaching the quad to do something that it really doesn't do, and that's concentrically uh, extend the knee. Um, the quad mostly in function decelerates knee flexion, knee abduction, knee internal rotation, and there's many other muscles that actually are knee extensors, and the main muscle would be the soleus whole nother discussion for a whole nother time, but let's answer the question. So a three-dimensional approach basically says this, even if I do an XXX squat, uh, my quad is decelerating knee flexion, and so are all the other muscles in the body. So calf is decelerating knee flexion, the glutes are decelerating knee flexion, the hamstrings are decelerating knee flexion, uh, even the intrinsic muscles of my feet are decelerating knee flexion. Well, if you have all these friends that help you decelerate knee flexion, it's going to be really hard for you to begin to develop what we call hypertrophy. Or, better yet, if you're rehabbing somebody and they're making good functional gains, but you don't tweak out the friends you will have 
relatively speaking, at about four or five months down the road, let's say an ACL uh, reconstructed knee, you will have uh, thigh atrophy. And so you're going to have to say, hmm, is that more quad, more hamstring? And as you get deep into it and you even look at some of the MRI stuff, it's, it's quad. And so we say, okay, what, what didn't we do well? Well, somebody might say, well, Gary, I know you're against knee extension, so you should have done knee extension. I go, oh, boy, I'm not so sure about that yet. Or I think you got to go XXX and beat them up with really loaded squats. I'm going, no, nah, I'm not sure that's the way to go either. Uh, and so somebody would say, well, what do you need to do? Well, we'll, we'll ask the quad. And so we'll say, quad, how can I get you big and strong and bulky? And the quad's going to say, it's pretty easy. Take away my friends. And I go, oh, well, what do you mean? Well, you can even feel this. So hopefully if you're watching this driving, you don't try to feel it. But if you're at home and you can stand up, it's real easy to feel. So just go ahead and do a single leg squat, just a moderate one, just partway down. Just go down and up, down and up, down and up. And everybody's working, okay? Now do me a favor, reach your hands down forward towards the ground and do the squat again. Uh, all of you will squat down further. Uh, why? Because you're basically tweaking in the butt. So you're lengthening the posterior butt and hamstring. You're putting it at a mechanical advantage. So when you go down, your body feels more comfortable, go down further. Now, the other extreme of this is take your hands, put them straight to the ceiling and actually take your hands back like you're actually gonna put them on a wall behind you. Pretend like there's a wall six inches behind you. And what you're gonna do is you're going to um, squat now with your hands kind of like touching the wall, even though there's not a wall there. 100% of you will not hardly even squat down much. You, it'll be, whoa, what, what, what happened here? Well, by forcing the hip to stay extended, which you're doing subconsciously by getting the hands overhead and back, you're taking away all of the quadriceps friends. Now, there's a place where maybe your hands are straight up or maybe a little straight up and a little bit anterior where you can get in some of a squat and you're bringing a little bit of the friends in, but now you're, you're actually facilitating more quad. Another way to do that is a tweak in the frontal plane. So if I'm on my right foot doing single leg squats and I take my hands and I have them overhead and I drive them to the left, the opposite of what foot I'm on, you can see that I'm adducting the right hip. And in that case, I'm asking the right hip to help me with the squat and it will. Although if I keep my hands in the frontal plane, I'm taking the butt out of it in the sagittal plane a little bit. So if you kind of do that and you feel your hands go forward, that's natural, you'll squat pretty good. If you then take your hands way the other way, now you gotta take them way the other way to actually keep the lever arm the same. But if you take that butt away, all of a sudden, now you're not gonna squat as far. And all of a sudden the quad's gonna look around and say, whoa, 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 time out. You just took away my best friend, the butt in the frontal plane. And so now you're putting more emphasis on me functionally. And we say, yeah, that's what we're after. And then the third plane of motion, and again, that's why I love the way Hayes asked this, is there a three-dimensional approach, is I'm still on my right foot, I'm doing baby squats, I take my hands, put them out in front of me, and I rotate my hands as far as I can to the right. Now, immediately you'll look down and go, wait a minute, I just internally rotated my right hip, and you'd be entirely correct. And therefore, if you were my butt, my glutes, you would say, you just eccentrically lengthened me, and I'd say, correct. And the butt would say, well, you just did that in the frontal plane, and I was 
better at squatting. You just did that in the sagittal plane when you reach your hands down to the floor and I was better in squatting. So I bet if you load me in the transverse plane, I'll be better in squatting and we'll say, well, let's go ahead and do it. So you squat down, come back up and go, yeah, I feel more powerful. You already know where we're going. We're gonna take our hands and rotate them as far as we can to the left. You gotta really rotate way to the left and now be very careful on this one uh, because now you're at a huge mechanical disadvantage. And so you go ahead and try to squat and you can barely squat. And the quad looks up and says, whoa, 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 but what happened to you? And the butt smiles again and it says, okay, he just tweaked me out in the transverse plane. You remember when he tweaked me out in the frontal plane when he had me reach to that same side, to the, to the right side and create uh, abduction instead of adduction. You remember when you had when he reached over his head and created extension instead of flexion? He just did the same thing to me. And I go, whoa, we have a strategy here. So we call that a top-down strategy. Now in seminars that I do, I'll very typically then say, do me a favor, stand on your right foot, single leg balance, take your hands back as far as you can, laterally flex to the right as far as you can, and now rotate to the left as far as you can, and now try to squat and people don't have a squat. And I then say, and you ain't got what? And, they, and people laugh, and which is good, and they say, we ain't got squat. So if I reach down and to the right and rotate to the right, and to, to create that adduction and internal rotation and flexion, I'm really powerful. That's why if there's a heavy box down there and I have to shift my weight to the right to pick it up, I prefer to have that box angled to the right a little bit so I get flexion, adduction, and internal rotation. Uh, I become more efficient. I can squat my body down and lift the weight of the box as well as my body weight. So that's a strategy top down. Now bottom up, there's a strategy as well. It's a real powerful strategy. Knowing that the calf is a real big contributor to uh, decelerating knee flexion and creating knee extension, we have to take the calf out. So the way you take the calf out is you don't allow me as much dorsiflexion. So what you could do is put me on a, a slant that's a downward slant or put me on a two by four where just my heels on the two by four, my forefoot can't touch. And as I squat, the quads immediately going to say, now what are you doing? And we go, well, we're doing a bottom up three dimensional approach for Hayes here. We're uh, taking the calf out in the sagittal plane. And oh, you can also do that in the frontal plane. I can instead, instead of letting the heel ebert and loading the calf, I can keep it relatively inverted. And believe it or not, I can do that in the transverse plane. And with my transverse plane load, uh, I immediately now can take away the calf as well. So what's interesting, we've done this a number of times, is do a triplane bottom up and a triplane top down approach. And literally you can get somebody, very athletic somebody, to not even be able to squat five degrees at their knee. Because what you did is you took away every friend and the quad itself says, I can't handle the whole body weight here, I'm sorry. Uh, so you're gonna have to not over tweak. You're gonna have to start with small tweaks. So the way we do it is we gradually go from hand driven from full down to the floor, gradually take it up overhead. It's frontal plane, we go from opposite side lateral to the same side lateral of the leg we're balancing on. And the transverse plane, we go from same side rotational to opposite side rotational. And then we do the bottom up tweaks as well. And we immediately get hypertrophy of the quad. Now this is hypertrophy that is functional hypertrophy. In other words, it adds to the function of the person because it's teaching the quad to do what it really does. Therefore, my asterisk is if I did have a bodybuilder, I'd still let him do 
variations of XX squats or RXX or LXX or all the different squats that we talk about. And I think we talked about 50,000 ways to um, do squats. In fact, we talked about 60 million ways to do jumping jacks and there are literally 60 million ways to do squats. And we would, if it was a bodybuilder, we would basically let them sacrifice a little bit of the patellofemoral joint by doing knee extension. However, if it's a rehab patient or somebody training and conditioning or somebody to enhance their functional performance, we would attack the quad 100% functionally and we would not isolate out on a knee extension uh, machine. Uh, That's just our preference. So Hayes, great question. Uh, Hopefully that was uh, somewhat helpful. So three wonderful questions during a time when we even wonder, uh, are we asking the right questions? And I think if we're asking questions in order to enhance somebody else's life, we're, we're answering the right questions. It's, it's interesting. A lot of people think they have to do something huge to be the hero. And you don't have to do something huge. Sometimes it's something really little. Checking on somebody, make sure they're okay. Uh, taking uh, something and leave it on somebody's porch with a nice note. Uh, just trying to figure out who might need a mask and get them a mask. Um, little things are huge. And of course, we have a lot of people doing huge things that are on the front line, uh, cleaning hospital rooms and being the nurses and the doctors and the people who deliver food and people who are really to, essential to our life. And uh, we just we want to take this time to thank them. There's no way we're going to be able to thank them enough. Um, I just hope and pray we uh, maintain the appreciation we have for them when this uh, when this uh, uh problem is hopefully past us. Uh, So um, we uh, just hope and pray you and your family stay safe. We thank you for uh, joining us on this bad podcast. And we just thank you for always trying to perspire and enhance your own abilities in order to inspire, uh, helping others out, serving others and uh, revealing uh, acts of generosity. If you haven't joined us um, in our uh, freetoplayathome.com, feel free to do that. We have a lot of matrix plays, some cool sign language, some cool AFS strategy, and of course, acts of generosity that uh, are a lot of fun to follow along. Thanks again, and uh, um, be uh, be uh, happy, uh, be uh, healthy, and be hopeful. And uh, hope is our ability to ultimately help others. Thanks, y'all, for all you're doing. This is Barb. Thanks for joining us here on the Gray Institute podcast. At Gray Institute, our goal is to do one thing the best we can, and that is to help you become the go-to movement professional. If you have questions for future podcasts or questions about anything Gray Institute offers, including education, live or online specializations, or mentorship, please email us at info at grayinstitute.com. If we use your question on air, we'll send you some cool stuff. Be sure to look for our next podcast coming soon. Have a great day. Move your body.